This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, a transfusion medicine pathologist and assistant professor of laboratory medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Lindsay Randall. Lindsay is not only a third-year medical student in our MD-PhD program, but she's also a teaching assistant with me in the immunology course for the first-year medical students. Thanks for joining us today, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into these uh, conversation with you today about how you're approaching teaching, because I'm really so impressed and blown away with your approach and how you manage uh, the students, particularly, you know, first year medical students, right? They they want all these details and sometimes uh, details can get in the way of learning. Let me back up for a second. Why did you decide to get involved in teaching in the first place? That is a great question. I feel like for immunology in particular, this was a class I was keen to get involved with because immunology is just cool to be perfectly blunt. And I feel like, especially now that I'm in the clerkship phase, I'm coming to appreciate how important and useful it is to have a good understanding for how the immune system works. So a lot of the questions that immunology poses are just fun to spend time with. They're intellectually stimulating. And it's also useful to reinforce these important concepts because it turns out they come in handy when you're practicing medicine as a clerkship student. So just really interested to get involved in that capacity. That really kind of cuts to the heart of, you know, where I get involved in this too. I I came at it from the idea of wanting to make sure to understand these concepts in a deeper, deeper manner. I mean, both my work in transfusion medicine, there's a lot of immunology that comes into play as well as obviously uh, transplant compatibility testing. I'm curious for our listeners, you know, you've been teaching (laughs) in this course, but how has your learning been from this experience of teaching? I've learned a lot is the short of it. I feel like a lot of the things that I've learned have been some of the mechanics or strategy with teaching, just how to teach well. And a lot of that has come from watching you teach. And I promise I'm not just saying that. I mean that in the truest sense of the word. And I feel like some of that probably also dovetails from the unique perspective that comes from being both a student and a teacher kind of at the same time. I have sat in that exact same lecture hall on the other side for, I don't know, how many lectures over the course of medical school. And I feel like I've got a pretty good understanding for myself as a learner for what it feels like to hear a good lecture or to walk out of that lecture hall thinking, that was a really great lecture. I learned a lot today, or that was super well said. But I feel like this class in particular was the first chance that I got to see some of those same things that make a good teacher good from the perspective other than just the receiving student. And again, a lot of that is kind of mechanics, if you will, like how to construct a presentation so that it flows properly and how to digest these really big, complex immunology problems into these kind of bite-sized take-home pieces for students, that sort of thing. But I think a lot of it, and especially the things that have resonated the most with me or the things that I have found myself reflecting on the most in the last several weeks have been some of the more intangibles, actually. Like, for example, there's, there's no substitute for just caring about students. Like the genuine interest that you show in students and their learning just shapes the whole fabric of the learning environment. And things like that have been really cool to see, again, not just from the receiving student, I've I've been on the receiving end of that a lot, but to get to see it and to see it unfold in front of me has been 
I think really, really insightful, really informative for me as a person who's interested in teaching at some point. You know, it's interesting you bring up the intangibles. I remember when I was a resident interested in medical education, I'm forgetting the name of the book, but I was reading about a study that was done where, and I'm not sure, let's just say like the course was like, economics, right? Something that maybe a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, it was like an economics course. And right, of course, it had been for years taught with subject matter experts. And there was somebody who was interested in teaching and research and just didn't know anything about economics, but made a bet with the educator that I think like they taught one section of it and then the the expert taught the other. And the person who was not an expert just basically approached with enthusiasm. And if I remember right, the students uh, subjectively felt they had a better experience. And I think that always is something that I stick in the back of my head and remember. Now, of course, (laughs) when we talk about assessment, it's nice if the students have a good experience, but I think what we care more about is that they learn the material and learn how to, as you point out, be able to use it then in their third year in clinical practice. I like that you were talking about the mechanics of bite-sized and also how do you sequence uh, a lecture. And for our audience, we're having, you know, physicians, laboratory uh, professionals and students, probably each person in that group each of those groups are probably doing a number of, of presentations. Do you have any thoughts about what you've learned about chunking information and sequencing information? Mm-hmm. I think something that has come in handy or, or that I think has demonstrated itself to be helpful for students is the, I guess, take home point of just starting with information that's very accessible, very comfortable. And then from there, kind of bleeding out into areas where it's maybe a little outside of their comfort zone. I feel like I've especially come to appreciate that just in my day-to-day job of kind of hosting that little Q&A session at the end of lectures. A lot of times with questions, I'll typically try to start with something that feels very accessible or like a, a patient case or something that hopefully by the time they get to the end of the case, They know what I'm talking about. They've kind of got a feel for what's going on. Hopefully that feels very accessible, very straightforward. And then I'll try to step just a little bit farther from there, like something that's maybe a little bit of a reach. Um, And hopefully that's where some of that learning happens. Because ideally, you know, if you see stuff that you're comfortable with all the time, that's great. And that feels good as a student. I can definitely confirm that. But there's not a whole lot of learning that takes place there. So I typically try to use bridges like that with presentations and with questions and things like that, like starting with accessible information and just taking steps from there as you go. I'm glad you brought up your questions that you that you do, because that's one of the things, as I sit there, I am very impressed with the questions that you're asking, right, and, and your pacing. But the, the questions... I'm not sure if in the moment, like a student can necessarily appreciate it, but I, when I look at the questions that you're constructing, you're asking very different kinds of questions. And also what's really important that I see, and this might be a point for our listeners to reflect on as a way that they can improve. You are so facile about like adjusting the question, right? Like maybe the question was something straightforward and then you can ask about like, why was B not the right answer, right? And you're able to ad lib 
really on the fly, really in response to the audience. And so I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate a little bit on, uh, you know, your approach for writing those questions, which quite honestly, I think uh, that's one of the gems of this course is we have, you know, you as, as a, a near peer expert that has that mindset that's so valuable for their learning. Well, thank you. I think if nothing else, I have the benefit of having done a lot of questions myself, especially at this point. Now I've taken step one. So I did all of the prep for step one. I've taken many shelf exams. Now I'm prepping for step two. I've got a pretty good feel for the sorts of things that exam writers like to include in questions. And so I feel like that's a big part of my philosophy. A thing that typically shows up in a lot of questions is, especially if it's a kind of clinical question or something that lends itself to a case, I'll try to weave a case together that has that kind of essential constellation of things in it that exam writers are probably going to include. Like if you see these, you know, four patient symptoms, you should maybe be thinking about this condition, that sort of thing. So I'll start with a case that illustrates whatever it is that I'm trying to get across. And I'll have that constellation of things in it such that hopefully a student gets to the end of the case, they've got a feel for what's going on. And then hopefully I'll make the actual question that comes at the end of the case, something that's kind of a second or third order question at the end of it. Again, for that same reason of it's nice to start with information that's hopefully accessible. You read through the case, you kind of know what's going on. It's not enough to do that. Can you take it one or two steps further, right? Can you step outside of your comfort zone? Can you apply this knowledge? Can you kind of think on your feet and think, okay, this is something that I know is going on. What might that mean for something else or something related? I feel like it's also just good practice for students to get into the habit of seeing and working with those kinds of questions because they show up on step one and they show up on step two and every shelf exam you take for every clerkship and that sort of thing. So it never hurts to have more exposure to that kind of questioning too. For more laboratory education, including a listing of conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. One of the things I also see is you don't shy away from, I don't know, maybe I'll call it a dirty question. <laughs> I have seen you ask questions where there is clearly, in your opinion, in my opinion, a best answer, but there's also something that's like, well, it's kind of correct, right? And I think that that's really interesting to get the students exposed to that. Could you maybe talk on why you've included those intentionally? I think if nothing else, I really like to get students thinking and talking I think especially for students who are really mentally engaging with content, if there's a question where they feel like an answer that's not the right answer that I had picked could also be right, or there's an argument to be made for that, I think it is so beneficial for students to be in the position where they are using that headspace and really thinking through, well, I think this answer is correct for this reason, and then being able to walk through it and kind of arguing your case, so to speak. Because even though on a lot of tests, for example, if it's a multiple choice test, there will be one correct answer. The real world and clinical practice is not so cut and dry. And there is a lot of that dialogue that happens on, say, clerkships. If you're on table rounds or something and you're talking through, what does this patient have? Why do we think that's the case? That sort of thing. I think having students in situations where they can go through that headspace and 
you know, argue their case and talk through, you know, why is this maybe first on my differential versus second? And, and how might that change if some other lab value or result came up or something like that? I think that's what it means to be a clerkship student. That's a lot of the clinical headspace of medicine and any opportunity to invite some of those conversations is excellent as far as I'm concerned. That's phenomenal. You're you're preparing them for those experiences and they probably don't even understand that. That's so neat. I think classically for a lot of medical educators, the comfort zone is usually like, I'm going to put together my stock can PowerPoint because I'm the expert in what I've built and I'm just going to rock and roll. Right. And that's my comfort zone versus as you're saying, as you invite engagement, there might be aspects that you haven't even thought about. Like maybe you thought it was a clean question and realized that, oh, well, maybe, I guess, when you look at it from that perspective or when you invite engagement, you get questions and things that maybe, you know, you're not expert. And that's challenging for a lot of experts to navigate or to be seen in that role as as maybe non-expert or they don't have all the answers. I think we can all learn from each other. And I'm kind of curious for how do you handle those moments when you don't know and you're standing up in front of this classroom and that's their expectation, right? You know, they're paying for their medical school experience and they're expecting an expert in front of them. How do you handle that? Hmm. That's a great question. I feel like I have the nice uh, kind of out, so to speak, or excuse of, you know, I'm also a medical student. I'm essentially their peer, you know, a couple years ahead of them, but still a peer all the same, still a student, still learning. So I, I like to every now and then be reminded it, it's good, kind of a humbling experience for me to be like, you know what, I spent a lot of time crafting this question, a lot of thought went into it. You can't ever exclude the possibility that a student will ask you a question, you have no idea what the answer is to it. I feel like that's a just part of the territory with being a student. I'm a fellow student with them. I'm right alongside them also in the learning process. I feel like I have the nice benefit though of having an expert at the front of the classroom that I can always pivot to if I don't know and invite some of that additional dialogue. And, you know, sometimes if it's met with a just genuinely don't know, I'll look into it and get back to you. That's not a bad answer either. So I feel like there's there's a couple of different ways to pivot and navigate situations like that. I agree with you. And when people get out into clinical practice, we see the same sorts of behaviors, right? That's why you see different physicians consulting each other, either formally if it's a different subspecialty or informally just asking a friend you know, what they think of the case. That's interesting, the questions that get asked and when there isn't the answer. Uh, one of the new things for me this year is, I don't know why it's just this year, but I'm noticing it more this year is when they have a question and I don't know the answer, I would say nine times out of 10, there's a student that Googles it in the classroom. <laughs> and so I think 90% of the time, I actually don't have follow-up on something because somebody kind of answers it in the moment, which has kind of been an interesting dynamic. I don't know if, how that's been for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely been some of that. Or sometimes I'll find myself, because I'm sitting at the front of the classroom sometimes during your lectures, I'll find myself Googling something. And a lot of times they beat me to it. They're just really speedy and, and know how to get answers <laughs> and where to look for them. So I appreciate that. That whole self-directed learning is a, a good philosophy and they've clearly got it already. Yeah, that resourcefulness and uh, tenacity there. Maybe uh, we can kind of close out with what advice do you have for people who are listening to this podcast 
who may be interested in developing their teaching skills. So, you know, maybe that's uh, physicians that are in practice that want to think about how could I become a better teacher? Are there some things they can kind of reflect on that might be laboratory professionals that are looking to connect better with clinical students they might be educating and, and certainly students like yourself who may be interested in becoming a better teacher someday? That's a great question. I feel like from my own experience, there is no substitute for just doing the thing, the catchy Nike slogan, just do it. I feel like there is no better teacher and certainly no more efficient way to get better at teaching than to teach. Will it always go perfectly? No. Will you sometimes say something that sounded great in your head and then it comes out and you're met with glassy eyed stares of, I have no idea what you mean? Yeah, that happens. But you get immediate feedback, which is great. If you say something that's well-worded and students get it and their follow-up questions demonstrate that, yeah, I understand what you communicated. That was effective. Mental note, that was a great thing. Repeat that. If you say something and you're met with a bunch of blank stares, okay, maybe, maybe I could have worded that differently. Next time I'll try something different, right? So you get immediate feedback. It's a very effective way to learn. I feel like beyond that though, especially for people, regardless of what stage of learning you're in, in academic medicine, a super easy, accessible way to get better at teaching is just to pay attention to people around you. You will always be surrounded by people who are teaching. Sometimes it will be teaching directed at you. Sometimes you'll watch other people teach other people. But if you pay attention to that, I think you'll start to appreciate scenarios that go really well, right? You can, you can watch someone who's teaching something to someone and it looks like it goes really well. And you just take a mental note of, like, wow, that was a great analogy. Oh, that was a great way of presenting that piece of information. I'm going to use that if I'm ever in a situation where I'm teaching that topic, right? Or sometimes you see teaching scenarios that don't go super well, and you can take mental notes based off of that too. Like, hmm, if I were in that situation, how might I phrase that in a way that might better communicate the topic of interest? Something like that. Just constantly being surrounded by people who are teaching, some good, some bad, some directed at you, some directed at others. Just paying attention to that can sometimes be a great way to build your toolbox of teaching tools and tricks and things like that. So no substitute for doing the thing, right? Just practicing teaching, regardless of where you're at or who's around you. Great way to learn. But regardless, just paying attention to other people teaching is also a great way to learn. I love that. When you say that, just do it, that almost, to me, that thinks, I think about the phrase, be the verb. <laughs> And how that has kind of helped me, right, to do the thing, uh, like you say. Two things I want to point out to our listeners about Lindsay's answers that I think was just wonderful. She was mentioning about when you're met with glassy eyes uh, staring back at you, right? Lindsay, what I'm taking from you is that for you, teaching is not only your act of teaching, but also assessing for your success at connecting with the student. That assessment of your teaching is a part of your active process that you're doing. And a second part that I see, you, you, you said, and mental note. So you're reflecting on that and going to make some change going forward, right? And I, I think one of my favorite slogans is that we don't learn from experience, but we learn from reflecting on experience. So along with your idea of just do it, but to do it very deliberately and, and reflect on how to do better the next day is a theme that I'm really hearing coming through in your answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a great way of summing it up. 
We've been rounding with uh, Lindsay Randall, third year MD, PhD student here at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being with us here today. Ah, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email to mcleducation at mayo.edu. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations.